Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Simon Severino, who is CEO of Strategy Sprint. And you're in for a bit of a treat, and I hope it will be desperately uncomfortable. Simon, welcome. Hey, Marcos. Hello, everybody. Excellent. Simon, would you mind telling everybody your background in 60 to 90 seconds and how you got to where you are? I'm the founder and CEO of Strategy Sprints. We help people double their revenue in 90 days. We work only with service businesses and SaaS businesses, and we have developed a comprehensive operational system on how to run a lean and adaptive company. It's the Strategy Sprints method, and we do this in every time zone right now. Excellent. Okay, so this is stuff that should prick up people's ears because we all want more cash, more time, more certainty. But why is it that so few businesses operate effectively and efficiently? Where do we start? (laughs) I'm 18 years now in this business of being with executives in their team, structuring decision with them, taking decision with them. Uh, I have a long list of things that are not healthy and where they are flying blind. Um, we can start wherever you want. The first thing is that they don't know their numbers. Yep. Nobody knows their numbers. There is not one person out there right now who gets all the numbers every seven days, marketing numbers, operations numbers, and sales numbers. That's why it is the first thing we work on with them when they start working with us. They are all flying blind right now. Absolutely. So what are the numbers that they do generally have? And uh, why are they not sufficient? So on average, people get from something like HubSpot or Salesforce monthly reports about things that are irrelevant, just fancy but not important, and especially they are cold, they are too late. Because the main info about marketing is who is hot right now? Who, who is on your website today, wants something, and you need to reach out? And this is something that most people get every 30 days or never. Okay. So they're operating on lagging indicators, and they're operating on out-of-date lagging indicators. Yes. And in sometimes no indicators at all, because they don't even know they didn't They didn't create a tagging system that triggers the CRM when somebody is on the page and somebody is hot. They don't even know. So they have a lot of people lurking, a lot of people on the fence, semi-ready with with the small conversations. You you bring them from from 30% to 60% ready for the closing, but they don't even know who this is. Okay. So experience tells me that the majority of organizations fixate on the wrong data. So in the sales and marketing process, they focus on the number of marketing qualified leads coming through at the top of the funnel. Then they throw them over the fence to become sales qualified leads. And more often than not, they're not actually identifying whether these people can actually make a buying decision or whether they're gophers who've been told to go off and find some information. They don't recognize or understand when someone is looking passively and wants to be anonymous, or when they're ready to have a sales conversation. So they're inundating and bombarding uh, these people with irrelevant, poorly timed, worthless messages. And they consider that to be good marketing practice. And so they spend a fortune acquiring non-opportunities and poor leads, which tie up their sales resource. And their salespeople are spending an awful lot of time chasing dreams. Is that a fair summary? Let's ask them right now. So people listening, what are your marketing numbers of this week, your sales numbers of this week, and your operations numbers of this week? Now, if you ask me, our marketing numbers are how many people right now are on our website, reading PDFs, having a watch time that is higher than average on our videos. These are our marketing numbers. How many people subscribed today to our newsletter? How many people 
uh, opened more than one PDF on our website. This is what I get reported right now. The second thing in the sales department is how many people landed on our calendar, how many people did convert, how many people did reschedule, how many people do we need to follow up, and what's the both the, uh, the conversion rate and the amount generated in new closed deals. And the operations numbers tells me how many clients said that something is broken or something should be improved and uh, what's in their numeric happiness level from minus 100 to plus 100. That's what we call the NPS. So I have a number. And if it's 76, I'm happy. If it's below, I'm not happy. These are the three numbers that I am getting this week. And uh, I'm getting them in an automated way. Even if I'm on holidays, these numbers, they pop up. So that would be flying on site. And now I can take decisions based on reality, based on my reality. And the next thing that you're probably going to ask is, what else do you see people doing wrong? And it's that if they have numbers, they have theoretical numbers. So people come to me and say, my total addressable market is this. And then I stop them in the middle of the sentence and say, that is not your number. That is a theoretical number. So if you are Elon Musk, then that's your number because he has access to that market. But you don't have access to that market. So I don't care about the total addressable market. I care about the this week accessible market. So what you can access this market, that's your total addressable market for this week. And that's what's relevant. So we will do something in that market to validate your assumptions that you say, if I come with this solution, I will convert that percentage of people into buyers. Okay, then we will we will make a small test, a small experiment out of that. And we will test it in the next two days. In latest three days, we will have some numbers on a smaller scope that tell us if it would work on a bigger scale. That's a sprint. So you fast forward, you test it small, and you know if it works big. Now you have some market data. Nothing else is market data. Market research is not your research. Nope. Total addressable market is not your accessible market. Only your own data is what counts. So you have to collect your own data. And this, this is what we help our clients do. So why is it people don't collect that data? Is it ignorance? Is it because it's difficult? Is it because it's time consuming? They're resource stretched? I see two main reasons. One is they say, I don't have time. And the other one is I don't rely on the data. Let's start with the first. If you don't have time for this, then you are sucked into operations. You are too much in the weeds. You are working too much in the business and don't have time enough to work on the business. So, so the you're a bottleneck. Yes, you're the bottleneck. We have to get you out of the weeds and re you have to regain time to work on the business. So you have to hire, delegate, systemize, and get out of there. Otherwise, you will never work on the business. And if you don't work on the business, it cannot grow. And if it doesn't grow, it cannot scale. And if it doesn't scale, there is no fun in running a business. Absolutely. Then do something else. But it's just a hustle. You're wasting your time. And it will eat, it, it will eat you up. And that's not the reason why you started a business. You started a business to have freedom and to have a great life. You will have the opposite if you are in the weeds. And again, I see this so often where someone sets up in business because they are a great technician and they never let go of that because they don't understand that their job is to grow the business as opposed to become very strong technically. And so they get, they're constantly sucked into being in operations and uh, they forget or they, they, they never learn to delegate. They are afraid to hire because no one does it better than me. 
I see this all the time. Small businesses stay small because the owner keeps them that way. If the owner doesn't have a vision for where they are trying to take the business, it will always be little more than an overworked, underpaid job. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I was there. You are describing my life five years ago. So I started because I'm passionate about what I do. I'm passionate about helping people, coaching people run their business better. So I was doing the work. I was the fulfillment department and every other department also. So I was doing the work. At some point, when you reach 300,000, 400,000, you are at capacity as a freelance coach. It's, you cannot grow that. And so you start to say no to clients. Then comes your dream client and, uh, and says, hey, I have the dream project for you. And you say, mm, I'm at capacity. I can't take you because I'm working with all these clients that I don't want to have right now. So very, very soon, you are working a lot. You don't have your dream clients and you have reached the ceiling. You have maximum stress and low profitability because you are reinventing the wheel all the time. You, you have a revenue that maybe is half a million, but uh, it's, it's consuming you so much that you, you, you lose the fun and the enjoyment of running your business. And to be honest, you don't have a business. If you are doing that, you don't have a business. You have a great job, a series of jobs, of projects, of mandates, but you don't have a business. So I was there and I was doing my half a million and I was completely miserable because I was in planes all the time and I was growing the businesses of people around the world, but I had no business myself. I was just serving the business of others. And then I was thinking, wait a moment, what if I grow also my business? So I started creating my own growth activities, joint ventures, podcasts, books, affiliate partnerships, channel marketing. And now I realized, hey, my time is much better invested there. So how can I team up with people? How can I start systemizing and hiring and delegating stuff? So first thing, I started delegating the boring stuff like bookkeeping, admin, everything that I don't like and everything where I'm not good at. Then the second thing, I fired myself from fulfillment. I said, Simon, you are not allowed to do coaching anymore, even if you love it. So you can coach the coaches. You can coach the marketing department, the sales department, the ops department. You cannot coach clients. That's off the table. Yeah. And that was the best decision in my life. So what was the catalyst where you, what caused you to realize that you were guilty of doing all the things that your customers were doing? I had 20 small clients and I was dreaming of one big one. That client called me and said, Simon, we are ready. We want you. It's tomorrow. It's 155 countries uh, and uh, 17 languages. Uh, are you ready? <laughs> that was and a I, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't ready because I had no time to prepare the capabilities for my dream project because I was delivering all the time. I was in the business. I had no time to work on the business. Okay. So if we're looking at the most common questions people come to you with, what are they? How can I have more time to work on the business? Okay. And how can I have more cash, more cash flow? Okay. These are the two questions. So how can you have more time? What we do is every day we write down how we're spending our time. I have templates for that. You write down 6.30, I am having breakfast, 8, uh, I'm doing deep work, etc. Whatever you are doing, you write it down. And every evening you reflect, was it really the best use of your time? And tomorrow... What will you delegate to somebody who can do it better than you? And if you would live more freely and more intentionally, what would you do differently? These are the two questions that we 
uh, ask our clients and ourselves every evening, five minutes of a reflection. And after three, four days, you find the next one thing to delegate. You find the next one thing to systemize, to automate, to cut. Okay. And that's the best exercise you can do. Just write it on a post-it and every evening you ask yourself, which one of these tasks can somebody do better than me tomorrow? And if I would live more freely and more intentionally, what will I do tomorrow? Okay. So again, th this requires people to let go of the attachment that they have to being busy, being in the middle of things, being uh, feeling like they have control. And there, there are two takeaways that I've got from this so far. One is that you have to release yourself from the attachment of being busy and thinking that you are the best person to do the work. The second thing is you have to be ready to relinquish control. And in doing both of those things, the irony is you end up getting more done and you have more control because you're not putting out fires with one hand and lighting more with the other. So what pushback do you get from clients in terms of their internal battle to be able to understand that systems set you free and delegation, automation will allow them better choices in life? Right now, everybody gets it because like two years ago, I would get a lot of pushback in terms of, I don't think it's technologically possible. I don't think it works here in my industry. I don't think my team is ready for that. But the global pandemic has accelerated digitization for everybody. And now people are ready because they cannot afford anymore friction work, manual work, reinventing the wheel all the time. People are forced to have lean processes because if you don't have lean processes, your costs are too high. If your costs are too high, your profitability is not high enough. If your profitability is not high enough, you are at risk of not being in the game very long. So one thing I see many organizations falling into the trap of is chasing revenue rather than profit. What you make matters less than what you keep. What you keep, you can invest. You make, most of that goes to the tax man or to your suppliers or to your staff. So how do you focus people on the right end of that problem? We have created a template for that. We have reversed how a PNL should be built. So when you get your PNL, first of all, it's every six months or every 12 months in some industries. So we have created a sprint PNL for our clients, a template, which is a simple spreadsheet. It's just one tab of a spreadsheet, but they get it every 30 days. They get their PNL from their people. And it's reversed. The first thing, it starts with the net profit. Yeah. Then we have gross profit. Then we have costs cost of work, cost of marketing, cost of sales, cost of innovation. Then comes cash flow and liabilities. What do we expect to pay soon? What do we expect to get soon? And that's it. This is what they get every 30 days. We call it sprint finance, but it's really just a sane PNL. Instead of what they are getting right now, which is not sane because it's not soon enough, it's too late. 12 months later, it's too late. You need the PL to take decisions now. Should we hire? Which role should we hire? How much should we pay? These are the decisions that business owners need to take every day. And on what do you base your decisions if you don't have this kind of sprint report? On fantasy land, on narratives, on mood. Guesswork, hope. Hopium seems to be the drug of choice for many people in uh, leadership, management, and sales. And it's very addictive, but it's uh, very unproductive as well. So tell me this. Once an owner or a founder realizes that they need to manage their PL that way, 
What are the immediate payoffs that they get? Reality. The first thing that you get is reality. You are now facing the reality of your specific context and situation. This is never, never a happy place (laughs) because for 10 years you have been uh, working, uh, flying blind and working on narratives and now you see for the first time the numbers. Usually the numbers are not good, but the best thing you can do, you, you know this Chinese proverb, when is the best time to, to plant a tree? 20 years ago. The first ago. one is 100 years ago, the second yeah. one is right now. Yeah. The same thing is with your numbers. So at least right now you have your numbers. Okay, now let's improve them every seven days. Now let's define one bottleneck, one sprint of seven days and improve them week by week. In this quarter, you can improve 12 times, 12%. You have four quarters. So you can do a lot of things if you base them on your reality. So the first thing is to collect the data. The second is then to say, okay, what do we learn from it? Our profit rate is much lower than we would like it to have. Right now we are working with a lot of consulting agencies and marketing agencies. They have a profit rate, gross profit on average of 16%. That's barely break even when you net it down. Yes, because you know numbers and you know what a, what a situation this is. They don't. And some of, these, some of these are very big names in the consulting field and some very good consultancies. But the business model is broken and you don't see it when you don't track the profitability rate properly. And uh, some of our clients get from 16% gross profit to 60%, 70% net profit. We have 83% net profit in our company. And it's a consulting company. You can do it the smart way. And your book, by the way, thank you, I got it. It's exactly about that. Making channel sales work has a lot of things that we are doing all the time. I didn't know you call it channel sales. But it's, it's a smart way of running a business, a smart way of organizing work and costs and opportunity. Our philosophy, the sprint, the strategy sprints philosophy is organize in a way that your costs are always low, but the upside is infinite. Absolutely. So you de-risk the low, the negative volatility, but you maximize the positive volatility. It's similar when smart money invests. It's a similar principle. Low volatility, reduce it. High volatility, maximize it. This again then raises another question. When you've gone through that exercise, how often do you find that the client realizes that actually they've got a lot of the wrong customers? You realize it when you have a bad month. What happens when you have a bad month? Now you will see your cost structure. And the one thing we could say that is positive about the global pandemic is that everybody got a bad month, which is good for the reality check we are talking about, because now you have time to look at your PNL, you have time to look at your business model, and you see how bad the costs really are, because they are. And now at least you see them. So what happens when you have a bad month? Your costs are high, your revenue is not as high as it was, and now you you see that you lack the profitability. You you lack the cash flow to invest in growth activities. Because of course, right now, you have to do some sales activities that are also paid sales activities, if you want to get back on track. Mm -hmm. And you will see, hmm, we don't have the surplus liquidity to do that. Hmm. Our current costs do not let enough bottom line and top line in the business. So we cannot invest right now in a paid campaign. We cannot invest in long-term upskilling of our employees. This points to another couple of areas that I'm particularly interested in, which is identifying which of your customers, your salespeople have sold to that they shouldn't. And that's very often driven by your compensation scheme, which is driven on revenue, not profit. 
And it's also driven on revenue, not customer outcomes. So one of the things that I'm exploring at the moment is changing the compensation scheme so that you get paid a little for acquiring a new logo, but you get paid a lot when the customer achieves their outcome. You get paid a lot for renewals. You get paid a lot for the uh, extension sales, so cross-sells and upsells. But if it's driven around the customer outcomes and on profitability, not on revenue, then it focuses the sales team because salespeople are coin-operated. And uh, if you measure them and you manage them on the basis of revenue, even in a lot of uh, software companies where, in theory, after you've produced the software, it's pretty much all profit, you look at the uh, net profitability the, sorry, the median profit, profitability of the top 100 SaaS companies on the planet today, it's 0%. Now, that makes no sense. That's not building a fundamentally strong business with the ability to weather change and adversity. That's just a, an attempt at rapid growth so you can fiddle the valuation, but it's not creating longevity. So what advice would you give to people who are focused on trying to build that kind of business? And what can they do in order to create rock-solid foundations for their company? This is why we always start with operations. Before we improve sales, we always start with improving operations. Because the first sell is done by the sales team. The second sell, the upsell, the retainment sell, is done by the operations team. And... Uh, you have to always to start with operations. Even if sales is the oxygen of the company and you might be a young company that needs sales, yes, of course you need sales. But exactly as you said, Marcus, the first sell is done by the sales team. The second sell is done by the operations team. So the first thing that we do, we create a so-called value ladder, which is map out how you create value right now from awareness to engagement, to closing, to upselling, retaining, what are the core operations? We start from the client perspective, which is a customer journey. What do they need at each stage? What do they experience at each stage? What's the gap? What can you improve? How can you make it wow? Then we double that. How can you make it wow? I have to tell everybody. And now you have a customer journey which we call the basic value ladder. This is how you create value for people. Then we flip it to the other side. So if this is how we create value for people, what do we need to do? How do we need to organize and divide the work internally? So we'll have the first part, we call it the marketing department, from awareness to engagement. The second part, we call it the sales department, from engagement to closing. And then the third part, we call it the operations department. Make happy, upsell, retain. These are the three simple departments. And now we structure these departments. Who owns it? And now who works on form, fit, and function of the marketing system? Who, wants, who works on form, fit, and function of the sales system? Who works on form, fit, and function of the operation system? That's the owner of that system. Even if you have just three people in your team, this is what we do with you. And then they start hiring and they start delegating and they start systemizing and creating the processes and writing down the operations manual. And this is how you run a company. From there, then you can get more granular and more granular. But the first thing to do is to create your basic value ladder. How do we create value for somebody? What is the first part? Marketing. What's the second part? Sales. And what's the third part? Retainment. Operations. This, again, is really interesting because I've, I see it so often that a technician creates a product or a service, and then they go out, they try and sell it. Um, and then they recruit a salesperson because they want to outsource a bit that they're not happiest or comfortable with. Then there's a lag because now they recruit uh, marketing. And so each department is lagging behind the one before. And then you have uh, a finance department comes in 
and then human resources or something along those lines uh, comes in. And actually, that's the wrong way around um, because we should be leading with marketing. And sales is a subset of marketing. And finance, unfortunately, because the way businesses are invested in and uh, history is not the dog that should be, or is, is the tail that's wagging the dog. Because we need to have clarity in terms of our finances and our numbers. But if the customer is not satisfied and then outcomes are not being met, and if your employees are not highly engaged, then no amount of beating the drum around we've got to make more profit and so on, uh, you know, we've got to grow our revenues, is going to make any difference because you'll end up with turnover in your staff and churn in your customer base. So again, what advice would you give to those people who are saying, oh, we've got to manage the numbers? Because you can't manage the number. You can only manage the behavior that leads to the outcome, which is the number. So what advice would you give? I like people who say we got to manage the numbers. You didn't hear the finance department in, in my model. There is only marketing, sales, and operations because I think that finance must be done by all the three. Everybody is responsible for cash flow. Everybody is responsible for profitability at every time in every part of the company. Because money is the energetic exchange. It's the oxygen and the blood of everything. So it doesn't make sense to have a separate department or a separate look at things. And you call that the money look on things. It's the oxygen and it's the blood of everything going on, of the value stream. If you create value, there will be money flowing in. If you don't, there won't be. So every department needs to create value. And that is measured in cash. Now, you have leading and leading indicators, and you need both. You need input and output numbers. Input numbers. How many people did we call this week? How many people said yes? How many people said no, let's call later? And you put them in follow-up. These are input numbers. And then you need output numbers. What's the lifetime value of a client right now? What's the cost of acquisition of a client right now? What's the cost of sales? What's the cost of delivering the work? What's the cost of marketing the work? These are output numbers. You need both numbers. And uh, yes, some people need help defining and finding the right numbers. That's what we do with our clients. But we have them have five numbers in marketing, five numbers in operations, and five numbers in sales that are their most important numbers. So if they are subscription-based, you will have a churn rate there per week, per cohort. And if they are a service business, they will have a um, number, number of calls in their calendar this week. But you need your five numbers and you need them in real time, not months later. You need them now in your weekly meeting in one simple place, which can be a spreadsheet. It's, it's still one of the best thing you can have. A simple Google spreadsheet is wonderful. And if you have very complicated CRMs, even better, but you don't need them. The principle is that you get the right numbers, a few numbers, and you get them right now. That can be done via spreadsheet. Okay, so let's talk about the human side of running a business as well, because so far we've talked very much about systematization and uh, yeah, having structures and processes. So how do you make sure that all the different moving parts of marketing, sales, and operations are aligned and working in concert and are highly engaged? Communication is the most important thing because you need to align activities and you need to make sure that they, they stay lean and they stay in a way that they build on top of each other because they will start going apart bit by bit. That's why you need a meeting cadence that is helpful for you. Most meeting cadences of our clients are very similar. So there is something that happens every day 
There is something that happens every week and there is something that happens every month. We call them the three habits. So you need one thing that is daily. Daily 10 minutes of a stand-up meeting where everybody says, this is the priority I'm working on. And that's it. It's a short round. If you have 10 people, you can do this in 10 minutes because there, there, is, there is a visualization of the priority of everybody for this day. And I'm just saying my priority is winning this joint venture partner over today. Then you say your priority today is uh, making the, the PNL report. And so everybody has one priority and now you are on the same page. That's the daily meeting that you need. It's just 10 minutes. It can be asynchronous in Slack or somewhere where you post it. Now you need weekly meetings. You need one weekly meeting with everybody. Operations, marketing, and sales. One hour is enough. If you structure it well, one hour is enough per week. Should be always the same time. And you start with magic moments on the client side. And then you go to these three numbers. You get all these three numbers reported, marketing numbers, operations numbers, sales numbers, and then you say, okay, what do we learn from it? What do we need to improve? So this speaks to a shift towards a higher level of accountability, a learning culture, and requirement for everybody to be vulnerable and courageous enough to admit when things aren't working, when they're struggling, uh, to ask for help when they make a mistake. So how do you manage that cultural shift away from what has traditionally probably been an environment which is quite political, where people uh, try to hide their mistakes, where they say, you know, I'm experienced, I hire experienced people, they don't need training, all this kind of stuff, and where people can hide behind excuses and blame. Yeah, it's from hiding to reality. It's the same, it's the same transition to reality that we were discussing at the beginning. You, you start embracing reality, and reality is the number of calls that they did and not whatever stories uh, they, they, they want to present. It's the number of calls. And there is no good number or bad number, so there is no judgment there. You just want to improve week by week. And if it doesn't work, well, then let's let's talk about it. Maybe we're doing the wrong things, then let's stop doing these things. Maybe we're doing them the wrong way, then who can help me find out how I can do them better? That's the team spirit. If you think of a, a team, a basketball team, they don't hide. They want to see the numbers. They want, they have one goal. It's very clear, we want to get the ball right there and everybody has one role. They, they are absolutely aligned on the next step. They have a set of tactics and tools that okay. they have trained, and they want as much numerical transparency as possible. You want to know right now, was it in there or not in there? Is it two points or three points? So if you have a toxic culture, they want to hide. But if you have a sane culture, High performers, they want numbers and they want them right now. So when you implement this shift towards a reality-based culture, how often do you find that people leave the business because they don't like the spotlight being shone on them? Many people leave the business and if they do, they have very good reasons. And most businesses are a place that you should leave. <laughs> Elaborate. There is a lot of toxic culture. There is a lot of culture based on narratives instead of reality. And then things start getting political and then it's not fair. Then it's just group dynamics. Is are you in or are you out? Are you up or are you down? And, and that's, that's a toxic environment. So as soon as you can get out of there, the better. And if you can create your own business that's much better because now you can make sure that the culture is healthy, that things are based on sane principles, uh, the principles of reality, of simplicity, and of value, that you are really creating value for somebody. And you keep it simple and you ask if it's really helping. 
that's where you get your numbers because you ask your client, is this really helpful? And then they will tell you what you have to do next. You've just sparked two thoughts in my mind. One is that whenever I've worked with organizations, the moment you introduce accountability, the people who are have toxic behaviors and beliefs tend to leave very quickly of their own volition. So you save yourself a hell of a lot of money because you don't have to fire them. And importantly, what happens is morale tends to increase almost immediately because the people who stay want to be held to account. They revel in the feedback. They want to evolve and grow. And for those of you who are not familiar with the half a percent rule, if you have a culture where the objective, the stated mission is to improve your performance individually by half a percent per day, by the end of a year, you'll be about 373% better um, over a 240-day working year. If you improve by 1%, the compound interest effect is a 1,400% improvement in performance. Now, the challenge with that is that unless you've done the planning and unless you have the systems in place, then operations comes to a grinding halt very quickly. Um, so pay heed to what Simon has said, but make sure that you start with and you pay particular attention to operations. Because as you scale, and scaling is defined by uh, growing without creating additional work or costs, then operations will inevitably come under more and more pressure. So Simon, how do you make sure that operations is always ahead of your growth? By updating the value ladder. The value ladder is where you map down how we are currently creating value for somebody. And reviewing them is the monthly thing. We went over the daily habit. The weekly habit was getting the numbers right. The monthly habit is reviewing the fundamentals. The fundamentals are positioning and strategy. So are we selling to the right people the right thing that really solves their main problem at the right price, at the right place where they really need it? So for example, once a month, you check all these things up and then you say, wait a moment, they meet on LinkedIn, but we are always on Clubhouse. So, okay, it's not the right place. Then let's check the price. Is the price really the highest price? Is it really the right price? Most people have no idea because they don't have the numbers. They didn't check if they have the right price because they didn't test it. They didn't validate it. So you go through the fundamentals. And one thing that you would check there is it, are we still creating value? So is it still their need? Is the pain the right pain that we're solving? Is our solution the right solution right now for these people at this price in this space? These are the fundamentals. And then we do a little bit of competitive analysis. What else can people do? What are their behavioral alternatives? Who are our top three competitors? Do we need to take this into consideration or do we just continue with our plan? That's what we do once a month. And then also the confidence part. Does everybody here believe that we are 100% the best to solve this problem right now? So again, not only do you have to uh, bring reality into the conversation, you also need to deal with honesty and vulnerability. Because when you are starting to see what's real, then you have to admit the areas where you need to evolve and develop. And you also have to be ready to delegate to people who are better in those areas than you are and to be able to step away from the stuff that you might love in the same way that Simon had to fire himself from coaching, you probably have to fire yourself from doing the stuff that originally you set your business up to go out and do. And that means you also have to trust. So one of the rules that I live by is that you should always hire people better than you. And I, I remember um, a, a quote from Ross Perot who said that I don't have an MBA, but I have 1,200 on my payroll. And a moment of clarity for me, because the reality is that unless you surround yourself with better people, chances are you will only ever grow to your limit. 
So this then raises another question. I'd be very curious about the sprints that you've uh, put in place around hiring, onboarding, and developing staff. Can you talk to me about those? Sure. So 274 templates is what our client gets, and 35 of them are just hiring templates. So hiring is really important. How you post a new job, how you interview people, how you deselect people and select people, and then how you onboard them. We are very nitty-gritty in this process, especially the onboarding. We take one hour every month to review the onboarding, uh, the job scorecard. That's how we call it. It's, it's a spreadsheet that is, I, I made a whole video, it's a half an hour video just on the job onboarding and performance review process, because this is so important. You need, the first thing that we ask when we onboard, like right now, I have just onboarded a new head of sales. So I can tell you how I did it. Uh, first, the job, when I post it on Facebook, LinkedIn, etc., I use it as a marketing tool. So be irreverent, break some rules, show the people that you are different. And so what I posted is I'm searching ahead of sales and I did it completely different than the industry does it. And that was catching attention and that was showing people that if they are like these people are, then they fit. So don't think of the traditional way of posting, do your way of posting, because you show your soul, your personality, your team culture, and that's important. The second thing is when you onboard them, my first question was, what's your dream? So after three rounds of interviews, they qualified, but now they are in. And I said, what's your dream? And that was the most important question in these 90 minutes that we had together. And I wrote down every single word that he said. Every single word. CEO writing down every single word of the employee. This is important. Because now this is where you have to double check your values, their values, your vision, their vision. Does it really go well together? Think of a marriage. That's not a date. It's a marriage. When you onboard the head of sales, it's a marriage. Yeah, absolutely. And before you put a ring on that thing, then make sure you're compatible. Exactly. And then again and again and again. It's not just at the beginning and then you forget about it. Uh, it's again and again and again. So what's your dream? I wrote down every single part of it. And then I said, okay, uh, thank you for that. Now, this is the dream of the company. And uh, we went through the vision. Where are we in five years? How is every single department? And what will be your department's contribution to that? Why does it matter? And then we went through all KPIs and the behaviors expected and how we will review behaviors and how often and how we will review numbers and how often. And then we put it in each other's calendar. So we put 60 minutes performance review, head of sales, in our both of our calendars every 30 days. And we will go through that nitty-gritty from his perspective and from my perspective. And we will do that. And it will be 60 minutes every month. And that's a big ask of two busy people, but it is important to us. Well, it's way too important to leave to chance. So I'm with you. I mean, when I'm hiring and onboarding, whether it's a new employee or a partner, I work on 120-day cycles because the research is very clear on this, that a new employee is putting the company, the job, and the manager on probation. And if you don't set them up to succeed in that first 120 days, you've just sunk a load of money and time, and the opportunity cost of them failing is immense. SRC did a study, but this was 12, 13 years ago. But what they found was 40%, so two in five senior executive hires fail within a year. So the fact that you're hiring someone experienced does not exempt you from going through a really rigorous onboarding process 
and making sure that there is regular accountability. And when you're putting together an onboarding process, make it clear. What do they need to know? By when do they need to know it? Where can they find it? How will it be measured? What are the behaviors associated with it? What are the red flag indicators? What are the consequences of non-performance? How do you escalate? What are the conversations that you're going to need to have along the way to ensure that they are getting the support that they need? Equally, how are they going to feed back to you to ensure that the onboarding process remains fit for purpose? Just because you've done something once, twice for the last five years does not mean it does not require regular reviews. So key processes, make sure somebody uh, or a, a group of people are reviewing those processes at least once a quarter, if not every six months, to make sure that they're still fit for purpose. Uh, but so many organizations hang on to traditions uh, and behaviors, and we've always done it that way. Well, so what? It may no longer be relevant, or it may need refinement or adjustment to cope with the current environment. And that's what survival of the fittest is all about. Now, those that can adapt to where you are at the moment, not where you were three years ago. So um, how do you manage expectations where people are resistant to this constant evolution and change? Looking at it, embracing at it, looking at it, and having a conversation about it. But the first thing is to have the reality on the table. So to really collect what the market is saying, what the clients is saying, and what your team is saying. We also ask for the team NPS. So the same question to the client, what's working, what not, what's not working, what should we improve, who else needs this? We also ask this our team. And that's a very important uh, conversation to have. What's working right now on the company level, on the product level, on the team spirit? What should we improve? And uh, what's your take on this? This is one of the most important conversations we have. And we want to have this loop closed and uh, often. So short meetings, but often. Every week we have a full meeting, but also just a marketing meeting, a sales meeting, and an ops meeting every week. And this is where these topics pop up because we want to see them. We, we have a non-judgmental way of looking at numbers. There are no good numbers and bad numbers for us. Whatever the number is, we will improve it by 1% this week. That's it. So when you get that compound incremental improvement across all these different areas of the business, what shifts in culture do you start to notice within the first 12 months? First thing is that people start having ownership of the things. They are not just infantilized, like in most organizations where you have like parents and, and kids talking to each other, which is an awful thing to have. But you have all grown-ups and they are really talking on eye level and they have trust to each other and they ask for each other's perspective. So, for example, marketing comes in and says, mm, this week the subscribers uh, are 412 instead of 617. So you see immediately everybody in the team helping to find out why. So is this, is this a technical issue? Is this a product issue? Is this a campaign issue? Is this a targeting issue? Is this a creative issue? Nobody is looking for who is to blame. We know exactly who owns the marketing department, and they are, of course, responsible. But we are not looking, nobody's looking for who is to blame. And nobody's trying to hide. The marketing person itself is reporting this. And so they are bringing it up because they know that the team is here to support. So everybody will start thinking about it, asking clarifying questions. Is the setup uh, done properly? Did you double check that? The, the targeting is precise enough. Can I help you with creatives? Where do you think do we need to look next? This will be the conversation around it. So it's a very helpful conversation. And we all learn and we all get smarter through this conversation. So it's absolutely okay. And we really expect that people bring problems and say this number is not as high as we want it. Because that's what we do. That's what a weekly meeting is there for. You want to know where you are. 
and what to improve next? There is no perfect scenario in business. And even when you get there, like we are super systemizers. We, we love to automate everything, systemize everything, standardize everything. But it's like a spiral movement. In some months, we have it super, super smart. And we think, oh my God, we just have to look at this thing growing. It's amazing. Just one country after the other adding to the, to the game. It's beautiful. But this maybe lasts for one month, two months, and then something happens outside in the market. And then again, you have to start refining everything, adapting everything, etc. So you will have again one month of improving, 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 improving. Then you reach the next plateau. It's a spiral movement, especially when you when you are scaling, because now you reach a certain standardization on one level, but you want you will soon reach the next level of complexity, and so you have to readapt again. So every entrepreneur knows this, and we know that we have to look at the things. We have to see, okay, where are we and what to improve next? That's the game. So we try to enjoy the process, not the outcome. Okay, so this then means that you've got this uh, alignment across the business. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. So you've got a huge cross-fertilization of ideas and everybody understands how the different moving parts in their part of the organization directly and indirectly affect every other part and also the customer. So this is incredibly healthy, but many organizations are starting from such a point where inertia, atrophy has sort of become the norm. So for a leader to take that leap, that must require quite a bit of courage. What is the typical catalyst that causes them to say, you know, hands up, if we don't do something about this, either I'm going to burn out or go insane, or I'm just going to shut it all down. What's typically the tipping point for founders and leaders? The tipping point is when, when, when they cannot enjoy the business anymore. When you go to dinner to your dearest ones and you are either late for dinner or you're grumpy, that's the point when you know you have to change something. Because that's not why you are into business in the first place. You are there to have a happy life, to be impactful, to feel meaningful, impactful, that you matter, that you're making a difference, that you're creating every month more wealth and more freedom for people and for yourself. So when you come to dinner, you are happy, you are listening, you are relaxed, you know that your company is adaptive, so you can sleep well, now you can enjoy your dearest ones and you will ask them, how was your day? What was your highlight? And you're fully present. Yeah. I'm hoping my wife and family don't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, I love what I do. So it's for, for me, work is play. And it's really, really difficult to let go of it. But I, I'm seeing my reflection in the ugly mirror here. On that point, let, let's start wrapping up because we're hitting the top of the hour. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Simon, age 23. When you knew everything, you were invincible, immortal. What one bit of advice would you give him? I wouldn't give him any advice. 23, 23... I don't think I would give any advice. I would post a sign somewhere, like, you know, a bottle with, with, with something in there. <laughs> and, uh, and in there, I would give the sign, you are loved. That's the only thing. I think no 23 years old needs any advice. In that age, they are still full of wisdom, full of energy, and they need nothing really except to know that they are perfect and they are loved as they are. And that is wonderful if they share as much of it of themselves, as much of it with the world. Just share it. Okay, I can live with that. Good advice. So what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? 
I have tapped into <laughs> a running a global business without having any templates. So there was no template. I, I in, in all the MBAs in this world, don't give you a blueprint of how to run a company. I'm teaching in these MBAs and I'm stopped, I've stopped teaching there because it's a waste of time for everybody. <laughs> uh, there is no blueprint on how to run a global company. So what keeps me uh, on my toes is how to run a global and especially a distributed company like mine where it's a franchise system and um, how to keep the quality high, how to install all the right loops, how to make sure the culture is a healthy culture, is a sane culture and stays sane and healthy. How do I make sure I have the right people in and the right people out of the company? These are the things that I am, I am thinking about, talking about with my team. And it's, it's a lot of good problems to have. And as soon as I solve one, the next one pops up. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, so Simon, tell me this, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to in order to help them become more systematized to create more time, more money, more certainty? There are some books that are required books in our certification program. So we, we do certify strategy sprints coaches who can then improve operations and sales for companies. And there is a list of books that they have to read. One of them is about sales from a wonderful sales expert and also one of our clients is Anthony Yannarino and it's called The Lost Art of Closing beautiful books, a beautiful book which goes through the 10 commitments that in consultative selling that you have to go through with everybody. Beautiful book if you want to understand sales. Another one is The Trusted Advisor by Charles Green. It's an evergreen, no pun intended, and it's really a good book and still very helpful. We use the field book to train our coaches. And it's a very good book, still very relevant. Another book is, I forgot the author, but it's a wonderful book and it's called Let's Be True, Let's Not Play Around, something like that. I have to, I have to go into my notes and see the exact word. I hear it as an audiobook once a year again, because it's just beautiful. Let's get real, let's not play. That's, that's the, the title. Let's get real, let's not play. Wonderful book about the fundamentals of building relationships. And that is their definition of sales. And they went through 40,000 sales conversations to just distill this book and the insights in there. Another very good book is 8020 Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall. It's an old book, but Perry is still doing exactly that and he's still crushing it. And it's also full of eternal, simple truths, like find the few things that work and build on them. And it's still very relevant, every single page there for current sales and marketing, even if it's a dated book. And then I like a lot Ogilvy on advertising. I hate rules. <laughs> and and then there is Chris Chris is a former uh, FBI negotiator now negotiation is not sales but there are similarities in terms of how do you understand the other person is your emotional capability of understanding the other person high or low so I like Chris books never split the difference Chris Voss former FBI negotiator, because I think he asks a ton of good questions there. It's not one-to-one -one applicable. And I, I have applied all the things that Chris says. They do not work for me. Uh, I have a very different way of doing it in my own company, in my own context, but I still recommend the book because it, it is asking very relevant questions and it is challenging you. So you will be challenged as a listener, as a reader. Have you read Keith Cunningham's The Road Less Stupid? 
No. Must read. You will love it. At the end of each chapter, there are a series of really uncomfortable, painfully obvious questions. And it's one of the five books I wish I'd written. The other one I would strongly recommend you read is Principles by Ray Dalio, if you haven't read that. And another one, which is really important that most people don't pay heed to, is Just Listen by Mark Goulston. So it's teaching you to listen empathically. Mark Goulston uh, is is a friend of mine and is is a wonderful person. And mine. Yeah, he's one of my mentors. Ah, Um, Excellent. Well, look, and we, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. So how can people get hold of you? I hang out in our Facebook group, which is called Entrepreneurship in Sprints. It's a private group, but if you say you come from Marcos, I will let you in. Then I hang out on every social media. On Instagram, we are Strategy Sprints. On LinkedIn, I'm Simon Severino. Our website is strategysprints.com. And All the tools that I have talked about, you can go and grab them for free. They're open source. You can grab them at strategysprints.com slash tools. Excellent. Simon Severino, thank you. Thank you so much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this a useful conversation and you'd like to get in touch, then please do get in touch with Simon or myself. And if you feel the urge, then like, comment, share, and do subscribe. And please leave an honest review of the podcast on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company and your objective is to grow your business and achieve sustainable, real hyper growth, where you get to keep the profit and you've got highly engaged and highly productive staff across all of your revenue operations, and You've got customers who stick with you year after year. Let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you're somebody who really believes that sales is a force for good, we've recently set up a global community committed to taking back control of the sales profession and raising the standards. And we're tackling the hardest questions there are in and around sales. So questions like, what has to change in terms of executive culture, measurement, and compensation for any positive change in sales to sustain? What needs to change in compensation for salespeople so that they're focused on the customer's outcomes instead of their own selfish self-interest? Is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose? And other stuff like that. So we meet every two weeks on a Thursday evening Uh, We meet on Zoom and we're tackling those uh, questions. We're capturing all the lessons and making them freely available forever for anyone in the community. So if you're interested in that, check out the hashtag SAFFG, hashtag ProCustomer, and hashtag BuyerSafety. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.